Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Brown People Problems, a podcast where I, Nikita, your host, sit down with guests around the world to chat about what it looks like to navigate life while being brown. Today, we're chatting about substance use and addictions in the brown community. Please take this as a trigger warning. If you need to step away from this episode to take care of yourself, please do so. We will understand. But if you'd like to keep listening, we're okay with that too. <laughs> Today to talk about this topic, I have with me Jeevan Atwal. Jeevan is a Canadian certified counselor, proud mama, and a first-generation Canadian from BC here in Canada. She works from a holistic and trauma-informed lens. Um, she utilizes different approaches in her work, which include like person-centered therapy, mindfulness, inner child work. I know that's really trending on TikTok right now. Um, CBT. And most recently, she's acquired EMDR in her roster as well. Um, Jeevan basically believes that all individuals have the power inside themselves to make changes they need or desire. But often they just need a safe space and a supportive person to guide them along the way. When Jeevan is not in her therapist role, she actually really enjoys spending time outdoors with loved ones and cooking up a tasty meal. And when you're living in BC, yeah, you you better enjoy your time outdoors. It's absolutely beautiful. But thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation, Jeevan. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and talk about this topic for sure. So thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know it can be... <clears throat> It's one that we actually haven't done on this podcast yet. Just talk about like substance use. And I wanted to just have this conversation. You know, we're going to obviously like a 50 minute or whatever, however long this episode is going to be. It's not really going to do justice to the entire complexity of this topic. But Mm -hmm. maybe it's enough for us to kind of just get started and get our listeners um, a little bit more like familiar with this. Definitely. Yeah, I think just talking about it starting the conversation is something that's so needed in the South Asian community but also just with everyone that's dealing with um, loved ones that are dealing with substance use or they're dealing with it themselves so yeah anything I think is helpful yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and we know like substance use issues are so prevalent right like in our in the, the brown community and you know globally sure but even if you just look at within like the south asian context mm-hmm. on the continent there's a lot and then when you look at the south asian um overseas population especially in the west here in north america mm-hmm. it's quite quite prevalent it's something that i recently not recently but i learned about only a few years ago i just never maybe noticed it too much um around me because it's so well hidden and hushed up and also hidden hushed up I think and also I think for certain individuals in the population um accepted in a way like we Mm. I know for myself I grew up in an environment where it was kind of just what you did when you got together Mm. it was you know encouraged like to drink more and that kind of mm-hmm. almost I think for the men in general that I saw it was the more you drink or drink more it kind of proves like you're a man in a way in that kind of sense so it's when you kind of come up in that environment it's hard to really see that you know this could be you know a substance that can be misused or that it's not healthy um, when used inappropriately and things like that yeah it's it's like socially accepted right especially yeah. alcohol like yeah 
it's it's socially like rewarded because if you were that person who goes to a party and says actually no I'm gonna pass on a drink you just get bombarded with questions all around right and people kind of like put this like serious look on their faces and they say well is everything okay um it's just so expected of you to drink yeah and I mean to be completely transparent I'm that person that will say you know you know I'm not I'm okay for today or you know I'm not drinking and it's yeah it's almost like oh what's wrong you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, no, it's just, I'm making that choice. But I think because majority of people do like to have a drink, which, you know, is completely fine when someone says they're not going to do it. It's like, oh, you're not, you're not doing what most people are doing. Like what's going on? Yeah. You feel like a bit of an outcast. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I'm recently on a a drinking hiatus myself for the last Mm -hmm. few months. And, you know, it's, and I absolutely like love the people in my life and they're very great and they're very caring but every time you know I kind of go out with the same group of people I get this um well-intentioned but this still sort of like surprise level still still you're still not drinking okay like when when are you gonna drink again um so it's just it's alcohol is one of those substances that is just so normalized Mm -hmm. um and I also don't want to insinuate that the problem is the substance because we know that it's not the substance that you're using, right? That's right. the issue. It's why you're using it. So I'm wondering, Jeevan, if you can, just for our listeners, define what actually is addiction. Yeah. So I think, um, of course, there's so many definitions out there, but one that I really like and one that I use, because it kind of encompasses all the different varieties of you know substances and impacts it can have, is basically it can be a chronic or compulsive need um, for whether it's a substance, um, a behavior or an activity that someone is partaking in that is having some sort of physical, psychological, social effect. And it's, it's a harmful effect that it's having. Um, And it can often cause um, well-defined symptoms of withdrawal um, when, when you're being abstinent from it. So whether that's anger, irritability, um, physiological symptoms, sweating, shaking, nausea. Um, I think for a lot of people, when you think of substance use or substance abuse or alcoholism or any of those, it's always some sort of negative, quote unquote, negative substance um, that is causing those, but it can actually be any behavior, any activity that is having a negative impact on a person's life individually. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I really like, you know, how you put that together, that it could be a substance, a behavior, or any sort of practice, right? A compulsive practice that can become an addiction. Or chronic, as I said, too, I think, I think in this community with like alcohol, for example, right, like, people use the term functional alcoholic. Mm. Um, So it doesn't always look like a typical addiction you might see in you know, textbooks or on TV. Sometimes it is just that long term, maybe two drinks a night. But I think the question becomes what would happen if it wasn't available or if it was taken away, right? What effect would that have on your overall well-being? Yeah. Do you mind repeating that definition one more time? Because there was something else in there that I wanted to reflect on because that sounded really nice. Yeah. So um, a chronic or compulsive need 
for a sub substance, sorry, behavior or activity that is having some sort of harmful physical, psychological, social effect, and then often causing um, like well-defined symptoms for an individual upon withdrawing from it or kind of trying to abstain from it. Mm. Yeah, what jumps out as me is the behavior or activity, right? Because when we think of addiction, we can tend to have a very sort of narrow kind of view of it. But right, yeah. in activity or behavior, that's very inclusive because, you know, shopping can be addictive. Mm-hmm. You can shop compulsively, eat compulsively. And that's a sort of addiction behavior that we see more of in like women of color, right? Yeah. Their relationship to food. Yeah, no, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, yeah, I think addiction varies, um, between, I think it's so different even within the South Asian community between men and women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not sure how much experience you have around this, but for what I've seen when men have this addiction, it's almost, you know, it's hushed up, it's hidden, it's almost accepted in a way that like, that's just what men do in the community. And it's, it's sometimes um, almost like, oh, there must be another reason that this person is drinking. So it's not mm-hmm. on that individual. It's always something else must have made you upset or made you angry or didn't treat you right. And then when you look at women, it's, you know, how could you do that to the family name? How do you have no self-control? Um, you mm-hmm. should be ashamed of yourself. So like the perspective, I think just from, the outer community around whether it's a male or female having the addiction or the substance use problem Mm. definitely influences how the person themselves sees kind of the behavior that they're engaging into. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. We're more lenient with boys who knew. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're right. Shocking. I know. Shocking revelation. (laughs) I think you're right. There is a lot more leniency as you were kind of saying that I was thinking of this, like, you know, really kind of stereotypical thing that you hear a lot of maybe older uh, people kind of say when they find out some, like a boy in their family um, is struggling with addictions, they'll say something on the lines of, oh, this friend got him hooked onto it, or, you know, someone else got my poor son addicted to something. And there's this very, like, huge, like, lack of accountability. Mm -hmm. Uh, And not, and we know that they're, we're not assuming a place of shame and blame with addictions, right? Because no. it, it's it's a lot more nuanced than that. But I think right. what you're saying is how we treat the person who is forming some sort of a, a dependency issue really right. then impacts how they themselves internalize what's going on for them. Right. Yeah. And I've had male clients in the past um, kind of come from this environment that we just kind of spoke about. Yeah. And there's almost this sense of, like resentment for them to be like, mm-hmm. why didn't someone hold me accountable, which I've seen. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's hard. Cause when you come back to that concept of shame or blame, you know, then they blame themselves, they blame their family. And it's a lot of work around like, you know, like the word intergenerational trauma comes up. Cause it's like, you only know what you know. Mm-hmm. So you your parents or your family probably thought they were protecting you and you were this, I don't know, young adult that maybe didn't, that's what you were taught. That's what you learned. Right. So you only know what you know. And that's why I really come from a place of having the knowledge of like what addiction truly is, is so powerful. It's not just a choice of 
I'm going to get up and drink today, or I'm going to get up and use a substance today. It's so much deeper rooted than that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that intergenerational trauma piece, right. You hit the nail on the head there because you, you know what, you know, but you also don't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. And how we parent the next generation um, is so deeply informed by how we were parented. Right. And yeah. I know, I mean, we could go down this tangent forever, but, um, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. if you're listening, the last episode, um, with the Dr. Sodi, we talked about intergenerational trauma, um, as well, but not necessarily in the context of parenting, but right. I guess, yeah. yeah, like relevant here. Yeah. Um, so what's your experience been like working with addictions in the South Asian community? For me, the interest started because of personal experiences, um, mm-hmm. A close family member deals with you know an alcohol problem yeah. um so that's actually where I would say I have most of my experience mm-hmm. is in on the personal side of just you know and then going through school and then having that therapist hat to put on and you know you look at you know the people around you or your relationships and you go huh, I wonder what the barriers have been to support or I wonder what why this person doesn't reach out or why there isn't enough supports for people from different cultures and stuff like that. Um, But the limited experience I do have, I mean, it's so limited because I think there's that huge barrier around shame and bringing shame to the family name um, for the few clients I have worked with um, openly about, you know, their addiction. And when I say that, I mean, people that are able to say I have Mm -hmm. so-and-so problem. Cause I think that's always the first step with helping someone, right? Like you have to, you can't put that on someone. Oh, you have this. They have to be able to come to that realization on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the experience is first working through that fear of people finding out even that they're in therapy or, you know, like someone Mm -hmm. seeing them coming to therapy for any reason, really, when you look at the South Asian community, it's not something that's promoted, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think for a lot of people that I've worked with, like a lot of the, I don't want to say direct causes because I can't make causation statements, but a lot of it is that kind of fight between or debate in their own mind about being of, you know, um, the Indian culture or their parents coming here from India and then also being Canadian Mm. and the nuances of that. seem to lead people to feel like they can't cope with or don't know how to work through like how do I respect my culture and respect my parents but also form my own identity and you know stay true to the values I've developed now being born in Canada yeah immigration stress is very real acculturation Mm -hmm. stress is very real and navigating you know dual cultural identities that's really, really stressful. And, you know, exactly like how you said, um, addiction is not about what you're using or what you're doing. It's about why. Yeah. What's happening for you? Like, what is this thing, whether it's alcohol or whatever other substance or the eating, the food, whatever, what is this doing for you that you can't do for yourself? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think for the South Asian community in particular, what I've seen is a lot of it is either they don't know, have the tool, sorry, to emotionally regulate or problem solve. Um, 
because even from personal experience and working with families, a lot of it is, you know, we don't talk about the problems. We just push them aside or we brush them under the rug. And then that builds right with your emotions, with your feelings. And a lot of the time people turn to substances because they just don't know how to cope or don't know how to deal with the issue at hand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So they may turn to food or to substances to, to feel better. Yeah. Right? To regulate themselves. Yeah. And with food, I think, I mean, if I feel like it's not talked about enough, but yeah. just like that instant gratification, because when something tastes good, you're like, Oh, this feels so good. Or this tastes so good. Like we all have that thing that we're like, I'm craving that, or, you know, I'm not having a great day. I would love to, you know, have a bowl of ice cream or whatever it is for you. And it's just like that instant, like, Oh, I just feel finally feel some sort of positivity or gratification in this moment. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And it's often just that act of eating is what kind of like soothes the nervous system. Right. Mm. As opposed to even like what you're eating. Right. Yeah. Sometimes when those actions become comforting, Mm -hmm. right. Your body remembers that. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then the more you kind of uh, repeat that behavior, the more ingrained it gets and the more kind of like solidified it becomes. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because I was thinking about like, we kind of touched on it a little bit before the podcast about like how people will say, well, can't they just choose not to do it? Mm -hmm. Right. Or like, they don't have the power to just not do it. It's not that hard. Just stop doing it. Like you hear all these messages that make it seem so easy, but like whatever the um, dependency is on or the addiction is with it actually. And I know for alcohol and certain illicit drugs for sure it alters your brain (laughs) like the way the way that it looks the way that it works so I don't know if how much if you'd like me to share yes please let's talk about that Um, yeah yeah but using a substance like alcohol or like um any illicit drug or even you know with eating in that you know same category that substance actually stimulates the reward center of the brain and the release of dopamine that happens, you know, that release right after you do that behavior. So again, like you're saying, it's not always the substance, but it can be the actual behavior. So the taking a sip of the drink or using a drug or hitting like, you know, buy on Amazon or whatever it may be, it causes those pleasurable effects that give you the incentive to continue to repeat that behavior. Right. And then, while it's doing that, while these chemicals are being released and the, these pathways are being built, it's actually weakening your kind of pathways in your decision-making part of the brain. So in the prefrontal cortex, mm. so it's kind of simultaneously kind of doing this. Oh, yeah. And then because your brain gets so used to that, when you're like, maybe I'm going to try to stop, or maybe I'm going to try to stop drinking or shopping so much, or I'm going to set a limit those pathways kind of go, whoa, where's that thing I need? And then you get those withdrawal effects. And that's why, you know, when the withdrawal period can be so hard, because people are like, oh, if I just, you know, use that thing or acted in that behavior, these feelings would go away. And so that short term is sometimes in that moment for people that short term feeling better is almost the easier route to go than you know following through with that long term because it can be hard to see like the light at the end of the tunnel when you're in that place for sure 
Yeah, no, that was really, that was really well said. That's a really great explanation of it. Um, I think, yeah, because there's so much shame and stigma around substance use, right? That we kind of, it almost becomes a moral flaw. Yeah. Yeah, right. They really hold against someone. But like in actuality, underneath the surface of what seems like a conscious choice, it's it's more complicated than that. Right. And I think we talked a little bit about the social acceptance of like drinking in particular and some, you know, some drugs that people use recreationally when you're doing it socially or when you're in an environment where, you know, other people are doing it. So you're, I can try this or I can do this. You may not even know that by using it, whether it's a little bit or a lot, depending on other factors in a person's life, genetics, trauma, um, emotional distress, like all of that, like these pathways can start building from an like from that first use. So it becomes something that's a physiological dependence or a psychological dependence. Mm -hmm. And that mean, I don't think like for majority of people, that's not the intention. Nobody wants to be in a place where they rely on a substance. Right. And I think looking at it from that compassionate lens of like, when you think about people who are suffering with addiction or dealing with substance use, nobody wakes up and goes, I want to be addicted to something or I want to rely on something to make me feel better yeah so I think compassion is something that the kind of whole world or the community could use around people who are dealing with these challenges for sure yeah absolutely and especially when you know that dopamine system becomes really reinforced I, I my understanding mm-hmm. is that it reduces your brain's ability to produce dopamine naturally yeah right so then, then you, you really it. get, yeah, you get hooked onto that substance. And then that's where you see, like, you're feeling great when you're using and then you, your body can't produce it naturally. So then you go into like, whether it's when you're hungover or coming off of a high or something like you're yeah. feeling depressed, low mood, it's because your system can't produce it mm-hmm. on its own. So then your only real way to feel better in that moment is to use again. So you can kind of feel those good feelings again. Yeah. 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 Use again, participate in that behavior again, whatever physically right, yeah. or shopping. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about the actual, like obvious like substances, but mm-hmm. what are some of the other practices that you've maybe seen like personally, professionally that constitute as like dependency addiction behavior? Um, I think, wow, there's so many, but <laughs> I think one of the big ones that I've seen and in, in more recent years maybe because again like we're getting more open about talking about these things as well but control over eating so not almost always overeating Mm. but having the control over what I'm putting in my body Mm. can become very compulsive and like chronic and like the anxiety related to that so if I'm not in control over what I'm eating my anxiety is being heightened but if I have that feel like I have that control over every kind of food I'm putting in my body I don't feel the anxiety and also working out or physical activity of looking a certain way and like the counting calories so that whole kind of diet culture Mm. is something I find people have become either very obsessed with or dependent on having that control so they can look a certain way because, you know, social media, again, that's another whole other rabbit hole we could go um, down. Yeah. But the expectations of how you should look to be accepted or desirable. People are developing these compulsive or chronic behaviors to try to fit that mold. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially with exercise. I'm glad you brought that up because that slipped my mind there for some time, but it is, I guess, yeah, I guess objectively it's healthier for you, I guess. Um, But it's something that's so socially rewarded. Right. And Mm -hmm. I've, you know, heard people in my personal life say something like, well, I need to go to the gym for that like dopamine hit, but at what point would you say that, say, excessive exercising becomes concerning? Yeah, see, that is like, even when you say that, it's like, oh, like that is when you think about that question, you're like, wow, it is so socially accepted. It takes a second to like, yeah. like hey, what is the line? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I think from what I've seen and my experiences as a therapist, it's, it's when it almost becomes like all consuming. Like that's the focus. And again, what would happen if you couldn't work out or what would happen if you had to, you know, you were in a rush and you had to stop at a subway or Chipotle or something and grab food and you couldn't, you didn't know what calories were, what the macros were in it. Mm. Right. It's that when it starts harming you in a psychological or physical or behavioral way. Mm. Um, so for a lot of people, it's like being so strict on their diet that their body's telling them they're hungry, right? So their physiology is saying you're not eating enough, yeah. right? And that obviously becomes harmful in so many ways, like your lack of energy, you're not getting your nutrients, you're feeling fatigued. Um, and then psychologically or socially, like the definition I read earlier, like, are you avoiding spending time with friends and going out for dinner because you can't control what you're eating or um you're kind of isolating yourself because you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see or you're having body dysmorphia now right due to that um control so I think I think those are easier to mask though like you're saying because it's seen as such a positive social thing to be working out all the time and eating right and then someone makes a comment like oh my god you're looking so great and Mm -hmm. what you've been doing is restricting your diet and working out five days a week maybe twice a day and then that that's almost another dopamine hit of oh what I'm doing it's working like that makes me feel good when people say nice things to me yeah right so it's a hard one for sure yeah because I wonder about like again where is a where do you cross the line from discipline Mm -hmm. to dependence right because it can be very again celebrated that wow look at look at her she's so disciplined and I guess that is a good trait to have but then what would happen to you if you could like you said couldn't work out or what would happen to you if you removed this thing from your life temporarily how would that impact you and I think that's the difference I see between clients I have that are disciplined they eat healthy most of the time they work out regularly versus people who are struggling with I would say like having some flexibility mm. or like letting it go or even thinking about what would happen. Like I ask clients sometimes, you know, how would it feel? Like, we're not going to ask you to do this, but how does it even make you feel for me to ask you, mm. how would it feel not to work out today? Or how would it feel to buy a meal or make a meal, but not track everything that you're putting in it? And you kind of see with the people that are disciplined, it's like, oh yeah, like I can totally, you know, enjoy myself once in a while. Like that's totally fine with me. And then the difference between that and someone, you can see the anxiety, like kind of even Mm -hmm. coming out through their body language and they kind of go, 
yeah, that's already bringing up all these kind of anxious feelings for me, or it's making me, you know, feel shaky or sweaty or the physiological of it all. Right. Mm, yeah. So contrary to popular, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So contrary to popular belief, discipline comes with some flexibility. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You try to be hundred percent disciplined. We all know at some point we are not perfect. At some point there's going to be something that happens, whether it's internally with us, like we just, you know, like people talk about binge eating because they've been controlling mm-hmm. themselves for so long or something external happens, like mm-hmm. you're running behind or you don't have time to cook or you can't go to the gym. Something's going to test that. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's the point where my clients go, I didn't realize this was our issue until X, Y, or Z happened. And I realized the way I'm feeling maybe isn't the healthiest when that happened. Yeah. So often you recognize like your compulsive behavior when that behavior can't be executed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, for a lot of people that takes time Mm -hmm. to accept that it might happen a couple of times before they really look at it. Right. Like anything I think in therapy, it takes us all time on that journey to recognize where we need to make changes and we need to feel safe and we need to feel secure with who we're talking to, to be able to bring that to the forefront for sure. Um, But I have seen it kind of happen in that way um, several times. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting stuff, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So much there just in that kind of just with food or exercise, like that's this whole area. Yeah, absolutely. Can you share a little bit more about what, um, according to just like research and literature out there, what are some of the things that can contribute to developing any sort of dependency later on in life, whether it is to substances or behaviors? Yeah. So I think there's obviously so many factors and they differ so greatly depending on who you are as a person, where you grew up. Um, excuse me, but research, everything I've kind of read on worked with clients, um, definitely like childhood history. So like how you were brought up, um, Mm -hmm. were you lacking any sense of, I guess what you need? So whether that's attachment, safety, um, any of your basic needs that weren't being met, um, emotional availability from caregivers that all kind of affects, I think, as you grow up, like whether you can feel safe, can you emotionally regulate? Um, do you have more anxiety than I want? Well, I don't want to say more anxiety than normal. Cause I feel like we all experience anxiety on some level, but more, I guess, anxiety in the way that's kind of interfering with daily life. Um, so childhood and then just ability to be able to regulate yourself in general. Sometimes um, we can develop just through life experiences, challenges with that. Um, if you have, you know, certain mental health, you know, challenges. So whether that's, um, depression, anxiety, bipolar, like anything that, you know, you have to learn to cope with, or can be difficult to cope with. Um, and one that I really wanted to mention that I don't feel like we talk about enough is chronic physical health or chronic health, Mm. because getting a diagnosis of a physical health condition or a long-term condition or having an experience with a physical health problem that can be traumatizing or cause a lot of stress like Mm. that has such a big impact on a lot of people that I've worked with saying that was the event that happened and then I didn't know how to cope so I think it all really comes back to a lack of 
either, you know, not being taught skills and strategies to cope with different things in your life or an event happens when you're in your adult life. And then it's like, it's so overwhelming and you, it's hard. You don't maybe have the supports in the community, or maybe you don't have a great support system at home where you're lacking those tools to be able to cope and process through that stuff. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the time having something that's a, depending on whether it's a substance or behavior is either distracting you or can help almost make the feelings go away temporarily. Mm -hmm. Um, But most of the research shows that a lot of it is a coping. It comes from you're trying to cope with something and you don't feel like you can within what you have in yourself. Yeah. You're trying to make those like uh, uncomfortable feelings go away. Sorry. That was a very drug drug out. (laughs) No, not at all. I think that was, that was very thorough. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think exactly like coping, it all comes down to coping and emotion regulation, right? Which is a fancy way of saying coping with our emotions, our ability to decrease the painful emotions and increase the, the positive, positive, the more pleasant emotions. Yeah. It really comes down to your ability to do that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't talk about it enough, but like with physical health or chronic health conditions, I just have this huge like interest now more recently into the effects of not the effects, sorry, the link between physical health and our mental health, right? Like when you get a client in and they maybe just Mm -hmm. had a heart attack and their whole life has now flipped upside down. They have to change the way they're eating. They have to change the way they're moving thinking to you know make sure that they're taking care of keeping their heart healthy like that can cause a variety of then aftermath of like mental health like you're anxious now because a lot of people don't want to have another physical health problem you're depressed because you know you can't do the things you used to do or you have to pause the things you used to do for fun or change the way you're eating so I think that's something that really I've seen like the link between Mm. using certain things as a way to cope with that physical health problem. And I think the exercise that we were talking about is a big one. Cause it's like, okay, well, that's a way I could stay healthy. It can't be bad for me. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I think, yeah, just that link, I think it needs to be talked about more physical health, mental health is so connected. Yeah. And I don't think there needs to be that. I feel like there's almost like this line dividing like doctors and like mental health specialists. Yeah. But I think it's so intertwined with each other. Yeah, absolutely. I've uh, been slowly making my way through The Myth of Normal by Dr. Gabor Mate, where he just talks about, you know, like nervous system development and Mm. like what's happening for you externally, how it internally impacts your body. And it's just an area that we haven't explored enough. And now, thankfully, we're starting to, but it's interesting too, because I think people don't expect to hear things like that when they go to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> right? Almost like it can sound like Cookieville a little yeah. bit. Uh, so you really got to back it up with like a lot of science and like visual aids and things like that. But um, yeah, definitely. When you tell people like, you know, like your anxiety or like your gut health and your brain, like it's all connected. They're like, what? Yeah. Like, more proof about this before you sell me on this topic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's so connected. So you mentioned a little bit about the dopamine already, but I'm curious, are there any other ways in which uh, addiction can change the brain or change like the nervous system? That's something I, you know, have to look into more. The most I've read about when it comes to addiction, the stuff that comes to the forefront when you're doing research on this stuff is that reward center. 
Um, but I think for sure, just in general with the nervous system, like you, I'm sure you see it with clients and a lot of therapists see it with clients. It's like, if people don't have that behavior or that substance or that, what was the other one? (laughs) Whatever the other one is, behavior, substance, mostly. You can see the dysregulation in the nervous system. And I, I mean, I'm sure there's science behind that, but I could look up and read out, but like, I don't know if you've ever worked with someone or I've worked with people and I've read research on like, if they can't get that thing or they can't do that thing, like we've talked about, like the dysregulation that happens in their body versus someone who maybe has that flexibility that we've talked about mm-hmm. and say, Oh, I can wait, or I can wait, you know, till I can make it to the store to pick up that thing or that I can go shopping, mm-hmm. you know, in a few days. Yeah. It just totally throws your nervous system out of whack. Yeah. I can imagine that there's a lot of stress that your body goes through in that moment. Mm-hmm. Cause it's almost like that. I'm never going to get that thing. And then that induces panic, anxiety, right. Fight or flight. Sometimes for people, it's like, I'm either I'm getting out of here. I got to run away from the situation or I need to, whatever it takes, get my hands on what I need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I imagine when you're working with someone with addictions, you probably do a lot of work on just emotion regulation. Yeah. Right. Being able to recognize like our internal cues and work through that. Yeah. Just basic. I mean, I started the basic, basic of just listening to the body because even for a lot of people, like that's uncomfortable. And I think addiction or not, right. Substance use or not. I think for a lot of people, we don't tune into the body. We've learned to distract or, you know, just distract yourself or just keep yourself busy. That way you won't feel it. Mm -hmm. But as we know, as therapists, that's building and it's going to come out at some point one way or the other yeah so just even basic you know breathe for one minute or you know notice when you take a breath how does that feel um grounding um when you start feeling nervous or anxious about whatever that behavior is or that substance is can you kind of delay your need for it by grounding or breathing or you know having that positive talk of you know I'm okay I'm in control I'm here all those kind of things just bringing body awareness I think yeah it's such a huge stepping stone for people because it's something that they were never taught or learned about yeah absolutely because then you got to build your capacity to be able to regulate distress Mm -hmm. right so it's less likely to push you into a place where you feel like you have to rely on some substance yeah and I think you say that like you need to your body needs to learn how to deal with distresses because I think a lot of people dealing with any addictive behavior, that's almost what got them there in the first place was the inability to deal with discomfort. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I want to think about our people. Uh, When I think about like the larger South Asian community, like there is just, you know, such a gap in like emotion regulation. Yep. <laughs> right. Like we, like I don't. Who I, I imagine you now being a mom. I imagine you know is probably part of now how you want to raise your child. And if mm-hmm. I ever have children in the future, you know, probably that would include it. But like, if you think about it, like our parents and then their parents and their parents. Like, as a culture, larger culture, we've been stuck in survival mode for generations. Yeah, there hasn't been space for something like this. Yeah, and I think you kind of just sparked this thought in my head. I was reading an article 
Well, I don't remember the therapist's name, but he has a blog. I'll have to get it to you. Yeah. But um, he was talking about going to his parents when he was dealing with his anxiety as a teenager. And because we've been stuck in survival mode for so long, like, you know, most of our parents came here wanting to build a better life. They were focused on working, creating stability, having enough money to put food on the table, clothes on our backs, all that kind of stuff that when he approached his family, it was almost like, like, get over it. Like, we don't have time for that. Like, we are trying to make a life for ourselves. Like, almost like, how dare you have the privilege to have these types of concerns or even be anxious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For them, it was like, we're just worried about making it through another day and kind of making our foundation here in this new country. Absolutely. There's so much shame around it. You know, like we've given you everything. What do you have to be anxious about? Or what do you have to be stressed about? And it's interesting because again, when I say knowledge is power, those, a lot of our parents don't even know that they probably have been experiencing depression or anxiety their whole life. Oh yeah. They don't know how to label it or don't know the symptoms of it. Yeah. And like, even for, you know, that generation of people, aunts, uncles, parents in my life now, they're actually, it's interesting because through talking with my family or talking with people, they're able to say like, oh, yeah, I was definitely feeling anxious. Yeah. Right. But like 15 years ago, I don't think anyone in my family of that generation would have said that. Yeah. Because they just didn't know that that was what they were feeling. They just thought that was normal. Yeah, exactly. It's very normalized. Yeah. It's the sense of chaos that our communities yeah. have been living in. It is so normalized. It's like a totally a huge side, but I am at the age now where I have started receiving a lot of unsolicited comments about starting a family. And, you know, I've, I'll have, you know, aunties and whoever in the community say things like, Oh, you know, you guys think too much. Look, we had kids at like 21 and it worked out and it takes everything within me to really hold that back and say, well, is that the reason why most of us are in therapy? Like, you know? Right. Like, did it work out? Because we did. all have challenges now, mental health. <laughs> yeah. Like, do you, yeah. do you want, you know, so many of us, again, like, this not to shame or blame the parents' oh, no. generation. They added absolutely the best that they could. But so many of us were raised in chaos, yeah. whether it's like financial chaos, like emotional, like turmoil, like, yeah, you know, like we survived and, you know, we're thriving. Right. But there's a huge caveat there. And is that how you want to do it for yourself? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one thing for me, because you hear so much kind of like you said, is like, well, we gave you everything. We did the best we could. Right. That's never a message I want to pass on. Because like as a teenager, I remember being like, and this is no kind of shame on my parents or anything again like you know what you know and you don't know what you don't know but it's like I just remember being that snarky attitude like 16 year old being like you chose to have us so like don't put that on me right (laughs) right that's something I keep in my mind of like yeah I'm the parent and like my child is my child and like my responsibility to raise them be there for them teach her you know, how to regulate her emotions or, you know, that it's okay to be sad and it's okay to be angry and it's okay mm-hmm. to be happy. Like, I feel like growing up and in the South Asian community for myself and a lot of my friends, it was like, when you cried, it was like, stop crying. You have nothing to cry about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was, I think our parents way of protecting us or trying to make us feel better or stop us from feeling negatively. 
but it really just taught us that crying wasn't okay or that showing emotions wasn't normal or accepted yeah because that's probably how they again dealt with their own pain or again when you're trying to build a life for yourself in a new country with no you can't speak the language it's like I don't I feel sad but I don't have time for this because I need to keep my shit together sorry for my family yeah you're in survival mode absolutely And, and it kind of just keeps happening yeah. unless we break it somehow exactly but yeah that like growing up in chaos and just maybe intergenerationally too just like having that passed down that can really contribute to us not knowing how to regulate our emotions right which can kickstart maybe some dependency for so many of us um mm-hmm. I'm curious, how would you encourage our listeners to challenge the stigma towards addiction, uh, not just like within their community, but also within themselves? Because I'm hoping that this episode made, um, you know, some people like a little bit uncomfortable and got them like thinking a little bit about their own biases. What would you want to say to our listeners? I would say I always come back to like, first of all, you've got to have the same self-compassion that you would have towards your friends and family for you. Like if this is someone listening that is, you know, thinking about cutting back on a certain thing or wondering if it's an issue, like be compassionate for yourselves, right? We're all doing the best that we can, we can be doing with what we have. Um, And also, like I've said before, like learning about what it is, like when it comes to substance use or addiction, I feel like knowledge is power, like really understanding that, you know, it's not a choice. Like people aren't waking up choosing to live this life. And at some point, this was maybe the safest thing for you to do to cope with whatever you were going through. Maybe you didn't feel safe enough to talk about it because again, like we just discussed for a few minutes, it wasn't something that we were made to feel comfortable or safe about discussing within our family homes because it would bring shame or it would bring embarrassment. So we're truly, I think most people are doing the best they can with what they have. So bring that self-compassion. I think learn what you can and as hard as it may be reach out to somebody whether it is a family member you're comfortable with a friend um, if not reach out to a professional and if they're not the professional that can support you I'm sure they can guide you towards someone who can yeah yeah I think it just just talking about it more I just it needs to be talked about so much more yeah for sure you're not not you know just being mindful of how you also react to someone in your circle or anyone that you kind of see in life who's struggling yeah. um, it's not turn your nose up at them right and just mm-hmm. be curious about what's happening for them right instead of like just painting them with just this like brush of like a like moral flaw can you just be curious about well I wonder what's happening for this person that is yeah. pushing them into this behavior yeah and that was yeah exactly what I was thinking and I think mm-hmm. even one more note on that is sometimes we make those judgments and it's interesting and we all do it we all have these inherent biases that we're kind of like sometimes I'm like where did that come from so it's interesting to be able to look at yourself and say oh I had that reaction to this person who maybe has some sort of addiction behavior that's you know affecting our relationship or affecting them in a harmful way like say you, like you said, don't turn your nose away from them. And if you do have that sense that you want to, what is going on for you that you feel like, oh, I can't get near this or I can't support this or I can't be compassionate, right? It's always good to look inwards. Yeah. Because I think for a lot of us in the South Asian community, it is like 
oh, that person has this issue or this mental health issue or this substance issue. You need to se- separate yourself mm-hmm. from them completely. So you don't become tainted by that mm-hmm. yeah. issue where people don't look at you like there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also something that as a community um, that we could do, I guess, better with or learn more about is like, you know, like we, we're a big community and we're a minority, but it'd be great to, you know, it's important to uplift each other rather than try to separate or segregate. Okay. Well, they have issues. So like, we're not going to associate with them. Absolutely. Because everyone needs somebody. And it sometimes it's just that one person that you need to, you know, help you make that change or understand yourself differently. Absolutely. I think curiosity and compassion over, you know, judgment, uh, they go a long way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, being a therapist, right? Non-judgment, that's the number one (laughs) thing people are looking for when they walk through our doors is just somewhere they can put all their stuff on the table and people aren't making faces or judging them. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you have any books um, or articles that you'd want to link down below for listeners who are interested in reading a little bit more about this? Um, there is a podcast actually that I started listening to. Oh, okay. Let me, I'm going to have to pop up. I don't remember the title because I started listening yeah. to it a while back, but, um, it's, I believe she talks about a lot of different things, but majority is addiction and alcohol. It's okay. called the naked, this naked mind. Okay. And it's a really good podcast. If you're wanting to learn about addiction again a lot of it does focus on alcohol but like the reward systems and all of that it's very similar perfect um and then there is this book but I'll have to get you the title so I'll email it to you yes um and it's for people who either grew up in a home where someone had a substance use or um behavior addiction or something of that sort um and for people who are trying to support someone dealing with some sort of addiction problem I think that is something again that we don't talk about enough is it's not just the person dealing with the addiction but it can also have big impacts on the people around them as well absolutely I love that suggestion I will also link down below in the realm of hungry ghosts by Dr. Gabor Matei which is you know just considered like the standard in the field or just in general it's for everyone to just kind of get a more compassionate understanding of what really is addiction yeah. But I know we're just kind of getting started with this conversation yeah. <laughs> this and and you know we'd love to have you again um to talk yeah. more about this but thank you so much for joining me today Gio this is really nice. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. I love I love the opportunity to speak about these things and reach out to people, you know, that you might not meet in your day to day. This is a great way to reach out to people and you know make people feel less alone with the things they're dealing with and just educating just yeah. population on like we're all going through something and especially in the South Asian community like we don't need to feel embarrassed or shameful like we all have stuff going on so thank you for creating this platform for us to talk about these things thank you yeah and for everyone listening I will link uh, below Jeevan's um, socials and how to find her if you want to get in touch with her and stay tuned for our disclaimer The guest and the host at Brown People Problems do not offer individualized therapeutic or medical advice and our conversations should not be interpreted as such. This podcast is not a replacement for therapy. This podcast exists for educational purposes only. Please consider your circumstances and engage with the content mindfully.